I'm Ellie Tanaka, a senior research scientist at the Research Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna, Austria. Today, I will talk about part two in the series on limb regeneration called Signaling Molecules in Limb Regeneration. I'd like to talk about factors that have been identified that trigger regeneration. And then secondly, I'd like to address the issue of why a limb regenerates only after a limb is fully amputated and not after a simple wound to the side of a limb. Let's start with this movie on digit tip regeneration that we saw in part one. If you look closely at the cell behavior here, cells are migrating to the tip of this uh, digit to form the blastema, and then these blastema cells divide to regenerate um, this digit. Therefore, to understand factors involved in starting regeneration, we were wondering what molecular factors control cell migration at the beginning of regeneration. To identify such a factor, Joshua Curry in my laboratory established an ex vivo system of the bone-forming cells. He made cultures of fibroblasts that we know in vivo will make uh, the regenerating bone. He then used a pipette to scratch this monolayer of cells to make an in vitro wound, and then watched what happens. Now, if there's no extra factors in the culture media, over time, you see that the cells don't do too much, and the wound is still there 24 hours later. In contrast, if he adds to this culture media uh, serum at the level of 1%, now serum is the liquid part of blood, you see that the factors in serum cause the cells to migrate more robustly and start closing this wound. Serum is a very complex mixture of proteins. So we were interested in which one of the serum proteins might be in Reducing this kind of cell migration. Well, platelet-derived growth factor is a well-known factor that's released by platelets at a wound site. When this factor was added at 15 nanograms per mil to the culture media in place of serum, we then observe that the wound uh, starts to be closed by the migration of cells into it. In order to confirm that this migration was induced by platelet-derived growth factor and not, for example, a contaminant in this preparation. We took a culture, added PDGF, but at the same time added a chemical inhibitor of the PDGF receptor. And under these circumstances, then, uh, the migration and closure of the wound is inhibited. So we identified a factor in vitro what about the activity of this factor in vivo? To test the requirement for PDGF signaling during regeneration, we took this same chemical inhibitor and bathed the animals in this inhibitor during a time course of regeneration. So here's an amputated digit tip, and we're following these cells over time. In contrast to the normal uh, movie, we see that these cells remain stationary and don't enter into the blastema when PDGF uh, signaling is being inhibited. So these results suggested 
that the PDGF signaling is required for cell migration during regeneration. In order to confirm the specificity of the drug for the activity of cell migration, we took digit tips, allowed them to start the process of regeneration, establish a blastema, and then we added the drug. So in these samples, you see there's already a blastema here. And now in the presence of drug, these blastema cells are able to continue the growth process and generate a bigger blastema that undergoes regeneration. So that means that this drug was just not generally inhibiting all aspects of cell behavior during regeneration. Now, as you can see, the induction of cell proliferation is also a very important aspect of starting regeneration. So we've also performed a number of projects to identify molecular factors that initiate cell proliferation. One approach that Takuji Sugiura in my lab took was uh, an approach called expression cloning. So we isolated RNA from uh, regenerating blastema tissue, and we converted this RNA into cDNA, DNA molecules that we can stably amplify, amplify in bacteria. Now, regenerating tissue expresses many, many thousands of genes. So this library of sequences contain a diverse set of different gene sequences. So in order to identify one factor out of these many thousands of factors, we pooled these DNAs into 12 pools of 8,000 clones each. In order to identify an extracellular factor, we took those pools of clones and transfected them into human 293 kidney cells in vitro. We allowed these human 293 cells to express these axolotl gene sequences uh, for a while. We then collected the supernatant, the culture media, from these transfected cells. And then we added this culture supernatant to salamander myotube cells and asked which of these uh, cultures uh, had a, a media that could induce these salamander myotube cells to undergo DNA synthesis. From this general assay, Takuji could identify several pools that in, uh, could cause DNA synthesis in the myotube assay, and I'll talk about following up one of these positive pools. So now we have a pool that has 8,000 clones inside, how do we identify this one clone? Well, actually, we just keep repeating this, uh, this whole process again and again with this pool, splitting it into smaller uh, pools, several pools with smaller numbers of clones, identifying which of those pools is positive, splitting that into uh, a number of pools until we come to a single clone. This graph shows you the data from the last pools that we, were, uh, that we were assaying after we had come down to 24 different clones. By seeing that this uh, pool A and this pool 1 could induce this BRDU, synthesis, uh, BRDU uptake in uh, newt myotubes, we could figure out that this single clone, clone 1, which now transfected into 293 cells, could cause the 293 cells to produce an activity that could stimulate the new myotubes. So we sequence the DNA sequence from this clone one, 
And we found that encoded a protein called Marx-like protein. Now, this Marx-like protein family had been studied before and had been noticed that it has three uh, relatively conserved domains. The C-terminal part of this Marx-like protein from x had very little sequence homology to other uh, sequences. Now, these proteins are known to be uh, meristillated in the N-terminus. And uh, very important, these proteins had no signal sequence. These are sequences that are used in many proteins to get them outside of the cell. And in fact, this protein family had been studied before as proteins acting inside the cell to regulate things like cell shape, actin dynamics, and membrane trafficking. So we were scratching our heads and wondering whether this Marx-like protein really got outside of cells and stimulated the myotubes, or whether maybe this factor had caused the 293 cells to produce its own factor, some other factor, which was actually the one that had gotten outside of cells. So to check whether the axolotl Marx-like protein itself was getting outside of cells, we tagged it with a his tag, transfected it into 293 cells, and did a Western blot with an antibody against this his tag. And we found that when we looked at the cellular lysates, there's a lot of Marx-like protein here. But also, the culture supernatant from um, the transfected cells did have Marx-like protein. We did a large number of experiments to show that the Marx-like protein wasn't just randomly killing cells and causing them to rupture and release the Marx-like protein, but that the cells remained healthy and alive. So it indeed seemed like at least some Marx-like protein could get out of the cell. So we took the protein from the cell culture supernatant, and we purified it. And this purified axolotl Marx-like protein itself was able to elicit this uh, cell, uh, DNA synthesis response from the new myotubes in vitro. So this meant that the Marx-like protein in vitro was sufficient to induce a cell cycle response from the cultured salamander myotubes. Well, what about the features of this factor in vivo? We first looked at the expression. When we measured RNA levels uh, through a method called reverse uh, transcription uh, PCR, we can see that the levels of, uh, of Marx-like protein RNA go way up in the first hours of regeneration and then come back down. This corresponds to the time when the epidermal cells are crawling over the end of the appendage. Here's a limb section where we stain the section with using an antibody against the Marx-like protein, marked in white here. In blue are all the nuclei found in the section of this limb. You can see that there's the Marx-like protein is in the outer surface. These are the epidermal cells of the limb. And this is the part of the epidermis that has crawled over the end of the amputated uh, limb. Uh, you can see here uh, in a zoom that in the wound epidermis, the Marx-like protein seems to be associated with the, outer, with, the, uh, with the edges of the cells. Now, can cells in vivo respond to Marx-like protein? To answer this question, Takuji took his purified Marx-like protein and injected it straight into an uninjured uh, tail. 
He then uh, waited uh, some three days and then treated the animal with bromodeoxyuridine to assay for whether the cells were synthesizing DNA. He then fixed the tissue, sectioned it, and looked for um, the presence of bromodeoxyuridine using immunofluorescence. So here are the sections from an animal that was injected with PBS only, phosph- uh, phosphate-buffered saline only, and these nuclei show are, are cells that have taken up bromodeoxyuridine. So you can see there are some cells synthesizing DNA. Now this is a sample where Marx-like protein has been injected on this side of the section. You can see that there are more cells that have taken up bromodeoxyuridine. We quantitated this uh, by counting the fraction of cells in each type of tissue that had incorporated bromodeoxyuridine. And in orange uh, are the samples that had been injected with the Marx-like protein. In many different tissues, you can see that the Marx-like protein caused a significant increase in the fraction of cells uh, uh, that had taken up bromodeoxyuridine, including epidermis, spinal cord, notochord. Uh, Other tissues basically means fibroblasts and Pax7 positive cells. So we conclude then that the Marx-like protein is sufficient to induce a DNA synthesis response in several cell types in vivo. To test for necessity, is Marx-like protein required for the onset of DNA synthesis and cell cycling during regeneration? We did the following experiment. We infused the tissue, a regenerating tissue, with an antibody against Marx-like protein that should coat the protein and prevent it from functioning. We then waited three days and then, again, treated the animals with bromodeoxyuridine. So since the tissue was regenerating, many cells were proliferating, and you can see this here. This is uh, the regenerating tissue that had been injected with normal buffer as a control, and you see many, many cells that have incorporated bromodeoxyuridine. Here's a control antibody-injected tissue sample, an antibody against GFP, which is not being expressed by the tissue at all. So there's no GFP in this tissue. And again, you see many cells that have taken up bromodeoxyuridine. In contrast, when we injected the tail with this antibody against axolotl Marx-like protein, now you see many fewer cells that have incorporated bromodeoxyuridine. We have performed other types of experiments to prevent the uh, synthesis of Marx-like protein during regeneration and also see an inhibition of DNA synthesis and regeneration. So from these experiments, we conclude that Marx-like protein is used during regeneration at the onset uh, of cell proliferation. So to summarize these results, in an appendage we see that Marx-like protein is expressed already in the skin of an uninjured appendage, such as the limb or the tail. When we amputate that appendage, then the skin, uh, the epidermal cells, crawl over the end of the epidermis, and Marx-like protein is associated with um, the uh, peripheries of the cell. Then this protein seems to be released into the underlying tissues, and then induces uh, cells, underlying cells, to start the process of proliferation.
We've worked on a number of other factors that uh, are present at the start of regeneration and involved in triggering the first events of regeneration. So to reiterate the first part of the talk, we identified platelet-derived growth factor as a factor that would be released from platelets and induces the migration of cells to the tip of the limb. With biochemical experiments, we've identified a bone morphogenetic protein as a factor present in circulating blood. So when blood vessels are broken, then bone morphogenetic protein would be released. In addition, we found that clotting proteases, such as thrombin and plasmid, can cleave this bone morphogenetic protein and produce a highly potent form of it, 30-fold more potent than the normal form of bone morphogenetic protein. This, then, is used uh, to stimulate further rounds of cell proliferation um, during regeneration. In this next part, I'd like to discuss molecular factors that are involved in sustaining regeneration. And by working on this problem, we started to understand what factors really are involved in making sure that you regenerate only after amputating the limb and not after, for example, a wound to the side of the limb. To start the discussion, let me go through some attributes that are required for regeneration. Marcus Singer and other colleagues showed that the presence of nerves is required for regeneration. It's possible to sever the nerves around uh, the shoulder region and cause nerves to die back in the limb. Under these circumstances where there are no nerves at, in the limb, amputation does not result in regeneration. In another property called positional discontinuity, a number of colleagues have shown that you need different parts of the limb to come together in order to get successful regeneration. This is best illustrated in this experiment where the blastema from the left side of the body is transplanted to the stump on the, on the right side. This causes a situation where the posterior blastema is sitting next to the anterior tissue of the host and vice versa on this side. Under these circumstances, then, three limbs uh, grow out of this structure. Now, Susan Bryant's lab developed a system to start uh, teasing out the different requirements for nerve and positional discontinuity in a system that they called the accessory limb model. In this system, they deviated nerve fibers uh, to the side of a limb. And under these circumstances, a little blastema forms at this site. But then it goes away after about three weeks. Now, in contrast, in addition to this nerve deviation, if they transplanted a little piece of posterior uh, uh, limb to this anterior site, then they had anterior and posterior cells sitting next to each other. So the combination of nerves, anterior and posterior injured cells, was sufficient to cause this bump, this blastema, to keep growing and to get an entire limb growing from the side surface of this limb. So this means that nerve plus positional discontinuity are sufficient to induce a patterned limb. 
a number of researchers have identified factors coming from nerves that uh, are part of this nerve requirement for blastema formation. For example, Akira Sato and his colleagues have identified FGF2, 8, and BMP7 as being able to partially substitute for this nerve requirement. But what about this positional discontinuity, the requirement for posterior cells to sit next to anterior cells in order to complete limb regeneration? Well, much had been learned about the process of limb development, and it had become clear that anterior cells and posterior cells express different factors. Summarizing this knowledge here in this review from Rolf Zeller, um, it had been worked out through the work of many labs that the posterior part of a developing limb expresses sonic hedgehog, and the anterior uh, side cells express uh, factors like gremlin 1 and BMPs. And this is important for the expression of FGFs in the epidermis of mam mammalian and chicken uh, limb buds and have, has a positive feedback loop forming in order to sustain limb bud development. So uh, is sonic hedgehog used during um, limb regeneration? Susan Bryant's lab localized the sonic hedgehog transcript during, in the blastema during regeneration. You can see the limb uh, blastema here. Here's an in situ hybridization where we can see the sonic hedgehog transcript localized here to the posterior zone of uh, regenerating limb. Interestingly, uh, 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 these colleagues then transplanted this um, left uh, blastema onto the right uh, stump and looked at sonic hedgehog in this stage. And here, you can see that this is the posterior side of the blastema next to anterior uh, stump tissue. And on this side, you have anterior blastema cells sitting next to posterior uh, stump tissue. And now an ectopic zone of sonic hedgehog has been uh, in initiated in the posterior host tissue. So then presumably, you're getting a limb growing from this part, a limb growing from here, and then a limb growing from here uh, when you get these uh, three limbs. So in my lab, Eugenio Nasu and his colleague Elena Gromberg asked what is required to turn this deviated nerve into a full limb. So could we substitute posterior skin with a single molecular factor? And based on all of these previous studies, we hypothesized that sonic hedgehog signaling might be sufficient to induce a limb to grow out of this surface in the absence of posterior skin transplant. So, in the control situation, we made one of these lateral wounds that had a nerve deviated to it. And here you can see the, uh, the little um, bump forming, the little protoblastema. It's still there at day 16. But then by day 23, it's basically going away. And then by day 34, it's gone. Now, in contrast, if we do the same nerve deviation lateral wound, 
But now we stimulate the sonic hedgehog signaling pathway using a chemical agonist of this pathway called a smoothened agonist. Now, we're bathing the animals in this agonist. You see this little bump on day nine. The bump is, has grown by day 16. Then by day 23, we see even further growth. And by day 34, we have a monster limb growing off of the side of a limb. And this uh, monster limb phenotype is consistent with the fact that we have sonic hedgehog everywhere around and not just as a little single spot in the blastema. So these results indicated that stimulating the sonic hedgehog signaling pathway in anterior innervated limb tissue was sufficient to sustain limb regeneration uh, and form a full limb. We then asked whether we could get the same effect if we deviated the nerve to the posterior side of the limb. So if we, on one side, the control side, we deviated the nerve to the anterior side as normal. On the other limb, we deviated the nerve to the posterior side. Then we added this uh, smoothened agonist to stimulate the sonic hedgehog pathway. We know that we should get a limb here, but what about on this side? You can see the results here. Uh, this is the posterior uh, deviated nerve, the posterior bump. You see that it's there for a while. It's uh, still there 21 days, but by 35 days, we see nothing. In contrast, on the anterior control side, the treatment of SAG has indeed induced this ectopic limb. So these results told us that anterior limb tissue and posterior limb tissue respond differently to sonic hedgehog stimulation. The posterior cells are somehow refractory and don't respond to this stimulation. Now going back to the knowledge generated um, from limb development studies, uh, we knew that uh, in, during limb development, sonic hedgehog ultimately results in an upregulation of FGFs in the ectoderm of uh, the developing limb bud. So we looked at FGF um, expression and it had been known from other labs that in axolotl, the FGF8 uh, expression was not in the epidermis, but was in the mesenchyme, this portion of the developing and regenerating axolotl limb. So Eugene hypothesized that the posterior tissue might need expression of FGF8 in order to induce a full limb. So in this case, we used a baculovirus to, uh, to get the FGF8 gene sequence into posterior limb tissue and ask whether that was sufficient to induce an entire limb to form. So you can see that here. This is a, uh, we've deviated nerve to the posterior part of the limb. We get a little bump or blastema to form. It starts growing, and indeed, we get a limb-like structure after 30 days. This is the control where the, uh, where the virus does not uh, express uh, FGF8. And it, again, you get a bump, but then it goes away. This work, plus a number of other experiments, allowed us to build a model for how sonic hedgehog and FGF8 work together to sustain limb regeneration and why 
limb regeneration occurs only upon limb amputation and not at a lateral wound. In this model, uh, we have cells in the anterior side that have different competencies than cells in the posterior side of the limb. The cells sitting in the adult limb on the anterior side have the competence to upregulate FGF8 during regeneration, but they are not competent to upregulate sonic hedgehog. Conversely, the cells sitting in the posterior part of the limb are competent to upregulate sonic hedgehog, but not competent to upregulate FGF8. So when, ampu- when regeneration starts, blastema cells are produced, we get upregulation of FGF8 and an induction of sonic hedgehog, but then the sonic hedgehog is re- uh, requires FGF8 for continued expression, and ultimately this FGF8 requires the presence of sonic hedgehog coming from the posterior cells to sustain its expression. So then this positive feedback loop is, uh, is initiated um, through the interaction of anterior cells and posterior cells. And through this working together of the anterior and posterior cells, you generate a situation where FGF8 and sonic hedgehog can induce continued proliferation and eventually patterning of this limb to complete regeneration. So I'd like to stop there. I'd like to summarize that we found that PDGF induces cell migration during blastema establishment, that marks-like protein induces a cell cycle during blastema establishment, And we now find that interaction of anterior and posterior tissue within the blastema is required to sustain regeneration. And we can put a molecular face to this to show that anteriorly expressed FGF8 and posteriorly expressed sonic hedgehog rely on each other for maintenance. And this is the basis for the anterior and posterior interaction that's required for the completion of regeneration, and that makes the system dependent on amputation for successful regeneration. I'd like to thank all the colleagues in the field for their insightful experiments, as well as the many members of the lab who have contributed to the experiments that I discussed today. Also, the funding agencies that have supported our work over the years. Thank you very much.